Jesus, we gladly would give our lives, and even though it's a struggle every day to demonstrate the genuineness of that claim, it's really no boast, it's just a prayer, it's a passion. We gladly would give our lives, we long to give our lives. We want so much to know you and the power of your resurrection in our lives. And, and so we know that by the study of your truth, your spirit then helps us to apprehend the truth with our minds. And it's a supernatural work as you illumine our understanding and we begin to be convicted by the truthfulness of it and the implications of it. And we come away being called and exhorted once again to conform our lives to it. And it is just such a sweet joy to see you work. Our minds are changed, our hearts are changed, our, our lives are moved. We need these reminders, we need the new insights that you give us, we need the fresh understanding. We even need the challenge of deeper study. So often we just want to get lazy, turn our minds off. It's a difficult work to bring the flesh under the Word of God, and yet therein is hope, therein is strength and grace. You never lie. You cannot lie, and so everything you tell us for our benefit is indeed for our good. And you call us to learn your word, meditate upon it, and make it our very daily bread. And so as we come to the study of this great book, The Revelation, and as we have already introduced it and we'll begin to work our way toward the center of it tonight, cause our hearts to be refreshed and rejoicing, we pray it in your name, amen. So, so exciting. We have uh, already had just one sort of a reminder intro message with respect to this great, great book. And uh, I want to, by way of introduction, take you to one passage before Revelation in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, just to sort of launch ourselves into a discussion of some of the background of Revelation. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, you have this wonderful call to the believer to ground ourselves and our hope in Christ, and because He has redeemed us, there should be in our lives this growing love for Him, this uh, wonderful, inexpressible joy, this, um, this conviction of affection, this settled rest and a strengthened faith. Peter mentions it here when he talks about being in the distress of various trials. Of course, as you know, he's speaking to the the uh, believers who've been scattered, he mentions in the early verse of chapter 1, and he says they are under massive persecution, and, uh, and so he mentions here that they're being tested by fire, verse 7, so that the proof of their faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, though you haven't seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, 
obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And so as to this salvation, the prophets prophesied about it. They looked into it. They sought to know the timing, and they sought to know who the Messiah would be in time when He came, when they predicted His sufferings and the glories to follow, verse 11. They were serving us, verse 12 says, and in verse 13, you turn the corner then based upon this great praise and glory and honor that is, is to be the result of this testing time right now. And of course, the outcome of this great life of increasing love for Christ, though He is not here yet, we are called, therefore, in verse 13, to prepare our minds for action, to be um, sober, and then this, to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Twice Peter mentions this revelation of Jesus Christ, this apocalypse, this revealing, this unveiling, this uncovering. It is, of course, going to be this great praise and glory and honor when he comes, and we will be swept up in it, having been tested by fire with a faith that's proven, and a life, therefore, lived in the midst of these trials with an increasing affection for Christ, focus on Christ, looking to Christ, submitting to Christ, enjoying Christ, empowered by Christ above the din of the struggle. Why? How does that happen? Because, verse 13 says, when, you, when your hope is grounded in Christ completely, that is when this work, this great strengthening work of love and an inexpressible joy and full of glory begins to move you in the direction of this great outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Peter says, don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in the ignorance of your heart, but prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope utterly, totally, completely, finally. On what? On the grace, not just that you have now, but the grace that results in the outcome, the salvation of your souls, the grace to be brought to you at the apocalypse. This is absolutely critical now when we turn our attention to this final book of the canon. It is this great culmination of everything. And in the book of Revelation, as we turn our attention to it, it opens up with the same terminology. The revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in a moment as to its specific interpretation because it's an important nuance I want you to understand. But in, in part one of this study of the book of Revelation, I exhorted you to push past the fear of exploring such a challenging book. And we looked briefly at six reasons why we ought to study the last things and not shy away from it and push all the way to where Revelation takes us, even if it means we come from different backgrounds and see different things. I mean, later on when we study the churches, we're going to look at the rapture. Can you believe it? We're going to look at the rapture of the church. What does Revelation 3 mean when it says, you will be kept from the hour of testing? Does that mean us today? 
Some think so, some say no. We're going to discuss the wonderful, challenging dynamics of the tribulation period and its relationship to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, and whether this book is futuristic or whether, as some suggest, all of this that is written here has already taken place. But I exhorted you to push past all that concern and come to these great studies because of these six reasons. I'll just review them so you have them. Revelation is esteemed when you do that because the whole counsel of God includes the future. If you take Revelation to be futuristic, and of course, you can imagine then, even if you didn't, that there is so much mentioned about what is to come in the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the least of which what Peter just spoke about. But Revelation is esteemed because the whole counsel of God includes these moments where we hear about the appearing, the parousia, the kingdom, the setting up of the kingdom, Christ's second coming. He will come just as He left. It will be a bodily return. It must be because He rose from the dead bodily. If He didn't rise from the dead bodily, we have no hope Uh, He had to come out of the grave in bodily form with a new body fashioned for glory because then we will be made in His likeness when our body is transformed by His power into a body fashioned for glory. And so He must return as He left. He must return fully to set up His kingdom as the God-man. The whole counsel of God includes the future. Furthermore, every New Testament book that addresses doctrine essentially mentions the appearing of Christ or moves in the direction of the appearing of Christ, and they do address specifics of the future. I told you last time that just because the text in Revelation can sometimes be difficult or obscure, it doesn't negate the study of the future. Secondly, obedience then is fueled or established or grounded. We're called to eagerly long for the return of Christ. And so I told you to study this is to ground your obedience. Thirdly, hope is enlarged. We just saw that in 1 Peter. You fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Fourthly, your sanctification then is empowered. You, everyone who has this hope fixed on himself purifies himself, Peter says. Purifies himself. It makes you diligence in labor for the Lord. Fifthly, evangelism is emboldened. Yes, you know it's urgent, and so you're ready to make a defense. You have a hope within you. You want, as we said this morning, to be on God's mission of mercy. And then you strengthen one another. Your discipleship is fully engaged. We live in this life till the coming of Christ, fully engaged, stimulating one another to love and good deeds because the time is near. It's approaching. So that was sort of a part one introduction to stimulate us to move into this and not worry about whether or not we agree with the nuances just yet. In fact, as we do the exposition of Revelation, I'm going to bring up different views from time to time just so you can, uh, just so that we're not just handing you a doctrinal statement or a system, but I can help you sort of understand why we take the interpretive approach that we do, just like we do the rest of the scriptures, including even Old Testament prophecy. Tonight, I want to look at a couple of things in the background that we must look at um, so that we understand the place that this book holds in our canon, in the canon of Scripture. We have to understand the place that it holds. Now, I'm not, I'm not interested in turning this into an Institute of Grace class. There are a lot of details we could cover. I'm not going to do that, but I do want to tell you a little bit about the author. I want to tell you about, a little bit about the date 
of the book, and that sort of is important with respect to the approach you take in interpreting it. I want to tell you about the recipients that are mentioned here in the opening of the book. I want to tell you a little bit about the type of literature that you have here, the genre, and then I want to tell you a little bit about our approach, and finally we'll end on the overall theme that is mentioned right out of the gate. I'll say up front in studying this that there can be no greater thrill really for a pastor than than just the process of coming to a book, studying the book, letting it sanctify my life in the study of it, to preach it then clearly to others or as best I can, as clearly as I can to others, to then take that clarity and draw out the implications for the believer's life and, and for their conviction and then shepherd the flock along with you shepherding one another to disciple you, you, God's people in how to live by that same truth. There can be no greater thrill for the pastor than to study it, try to live it, try to clearly proclaim it and shepherd you in it. The only joy that would exceed that very simple process is the study of a text singularly devoted to the truth about the revelation of Jesus Christ, the parousia, his coming. And to send our joy to the highest of heights, this is not just one short text or even just a chapter or even a narrative like you see in the Gospels of his earthly ministry when he was with us in his first advent. And so we could say while the entire scripture is ultimately about the glory of God in Christ, this final book of our canon is devoted exclusively, I believe, to the future return of the King of Kings, to his heart-stopping judgment of all evil, even even. Any new believer, let alone someone who's lived in Christ a long time, knows as you begin to study the Scripture and you understand evil and you understand the character of God and its offense, you know something's got to be done. There has to be an answer to not only vindicate the character of God and uphold His holiness and His justice and His integrity, but also to demonstrate His power over the greatest evil act that ever took place on the face of the earth, and that was by his preordained plan, the murder of his son as a sacrifice for sinners. Greatest evil act, greatest injustice ever done. Someone innocent, innocent before men and God. And so this becomes for us this account of the the arresting judgment of all the wicked. It must happen. It also then is exclusively devoted to the the awesome display of God's firepower. Absolutely staggering. Not necessarily all that mysterious. Some symbology for sure, but, but absolutely staggering. In fact, the more I read it, the more I read through it, the more it just, every step of the way, every moment of God's supernatural judgment, every miraculous display of His power just seems more and more fitting as you go. So that by the time you get to chapter 16 and, and Babylon is falling and the world is being judged and the final judgments are being meted out on the earth, you see the human heart in all of its wickedness railing at God, shaking fists, even though they know the judgments are coming from God. It's just fitting that God would judge. 
This is the display of that power. This is, this is the revelation of the swift, decisive triumph of the Lord of glory himself. This is the, the revelation of the reign of Christ over all the earth. And it is, of course, the precursor and ultimate uh, phase before he hands it all back to the Father, so says 1 Corinthians 15, so that God the Father may be all in all in the new heavens and the new earth. So i got to tell you, there's nothing more captivating to the soul than a study of a book like this. We get to spend time studying the unveiling. Literally, that's apocalypse, revelation there in verse 1. Truth given by the Father to His Son, Jesus Christ. The unveiling of what the Father wants known, given to His Son, and then communicated, quote-unquote, by His angel to His bondservant, John, so that all the bondservants of Jesus Christ would be shown the things which must shortly take place. Nothing more captivating than revelation given by the Father to the Son and then communicated by the angel as an emissary to John so that it could show the rest of us what God has planned. Now, it's interesting here in verse 1, you see the name of the author, his bondservant John. You see it again in chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. You see it in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are ours in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And at the end of the Revelation, chapter 22, verse 8, John, again, names himself and says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So, as to the author, he names himself in four different places. That this is John the Apostle, one of the twelve, was affirmed originally by as many as seven of the early church fathers. It really wasn't a controversy till till around the third century when, when an Alexandrian school student and therefore would-be teacher eventually, Dionysius, came along and he began to suggest that some comments made about a second John who had a tombstone in, it, in Ephesus uh, that it must be that it's just as plausible that this second John, or John the Elder they called him, is the author of this apocalypse. He, as well as Marcion, basically argued that it wasn't John the Apostle's work, that it was the work of this second John. And even the account of a second tombstone belonging to another John in Ephesus was dubious at best. It wasn't verifiable. It was hearsay. It was a testimony of someone. But nonetheless, Dionysius and Marcion basically argued that this was not John the Apostle. Since Papias wrote that there were two tombs in Ephesus with the name John, he just said it's likely that, just as likely that the revelation is the work of the other John, the presbyter, he's called, the elder. They also argued that the John of Revelation doesn't explicitly say he's the son of Zebedee. And so they basically say an argument from silence is that he doesn't name himself as the son of Zebedee, uh, so therefore we don't believe he's the, he's the apostle John. 
They also said that his writing style is different, distinctly different from his epistle, from the Apostle John's epistles, and then the gospel, which was written by John the Apostle. They say it's just too different. And they said the theology, of course, is different in its emphasis. And um, by the way, one of their last more ridiculous notions was that he would have been too old to have written so clearly of such fantastical things. In other words, his age would have prevented him from having such clarity about these amazing realities. As I said, the early church attributed authorship, however, to the Apostle John. In fact, one of the most difficult things for Dionysius and others to deal with was Justin Martyr's comment long about 135 A.D., And Justin Martyr, of course, it is said, according to history, that he actually lived in the town of Ephesus. And as you know, Revelation 2 will mention the church that is there later on in this apocalypse. But Justin Martyr made a very strong comment. And for the authorship here, it's just important to note, this is what he said, there was a certain man with us, this is Justin Martyr, whose name was John. This is in 135 A.D., one of the apostles of Christ. Pretty clear. There was someone with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem. There's a, re- there's a reference to Revelation 20. And that thereafter, the general and in short, the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place, end quote. Very difficult for someone to deal with a notation from an early church father in 135, clearly identifying John the Apostle, clearly identifying him as the one who received the revelation, and clearly identifying the notion of a thousand-year millennium, which is noted in chapter 20. One commentator said that it's a significant statement by Justin, as I said, because he is from Ephesus originally. But Irenaeus, 120 to 200, affirmed that John the, was the, apostle, the apostle was the author. Tertullian, 155 to 220. Hippolytus, another church father. Clement of Alexandria, et al., and the list goes. Even um, an extra-biblical writing, sometimes you've heard the word apocrypha, it's an apocryphal work from 88 to 90 A.D., and it itself, though being extra-biblical, said that John the Apostle was working with the seven churches in Asia Minor. John worked with the Ephesian church, which tested and bounced all false apostles. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 2. They got rid of all false apostles, so if John worked with the Ephesian church, he must have had his apostleship tested, and it must have been verified that it was indeed him. The whole work has the apostolic mandate of being publicly read. You see that in chapter 1, verse 3. Other epistles by the apostles were told, uh, were said to have been mandated to be publicly read in the churches. So you have a similar issue here. There's an apostolic mandate right at the beginning. It seems to me then it's pretty clear that from the earliest days of the church, there was no dispute. In fact, it wasn't until, as I said, the third century where a student at the Alexandrian school tried to suggest that it wasn't him. The church before then had never disputed it, always seen as John the Apostle. Now, we have to talk for a moment briefly about when it was written. And the reason is because there are two primary views that that may may, um, 
be the determining factor for you as to where you land on whether it is already past tense or whether it's future. You say, what do you mean? Well, there's one view that says that this book, this revelation was written in the time when Nero was ruler in Rome. So long about 60s, the, the late 60s, 68-ish, if you will. I like to put ish on the end of those because it's a little difficult to determine. So if it was written during Nero's reign, uh, there are those that believe it was written during Nero's reign, and therefore they can include all of the events in Revelation in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. So for them, it is past, it has already happened, all that's in Revelation being symbolic of what happened when Titus Vespasian came in at the culmination of Nero's persecution and destroyed and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The other date is the persecution of Domitian, and he would have been successor, of course, to Nero, and some called him a second Nero, and he he was in power about mid-90s, right about the time we believe that John would have written this. If it was written later on, then this is future, because he wouldn't have written of events that had happened prior in in the years leading up to 70 A.D. The earlier date under Nero, it was held mostly by those who believe that what's written in the book took place and that it doesn't really matter the specifics or the severity. It really does just describe the destruction of Jerusalem. You might know this view by the name preterism. And without going into it, basically... They see John's revelation speaking merely of the time when Jerusalem was done in. In fact, they will say that Armageddon, written about in the book of Revelation, was, in fact, Titus Vespasian's destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. You say, why would they believe that? Well, ostensibly, it's because if the events of Revelation are yet future... And you can see a little bit of the difficulty already coming, a little bit of the tension. If they're yet future, then many of these extraordinary judgments can't be easily interpreted symbolically. You can't. If you sat down and read the book of Revelation, it would have this forward future motion to it, a predictive element to it, as we'll see in a moment. And even as you read through the events, you cannot then go back to the history of Titus's conquering of Jerusalem and see parallels without huge symbolism and huge spiritualization and huge sort of mystical views. You you just can't do it. These are extraordinary judgments, and many of them are very specific. It's not easy to interpret them symbolically if, if they've happened already. You can go back to the history of 70 AD, and you can see what happened, and it just doesn't look like this. I went back this week and read the history of Domitian again, and... um I went to see the 70 A.D. destruction before him with Titus Vespasian and how, of course, when he sacked Jerusalem, he went back to Rome to celebrate his victory. You can go there and you can see the arch there. I've seen the arch. And then you you know that there were about a thousand Jews that, that ran and fled into the Judean wilderness and ended up down on the old fortress uh, palace of Herod on Masada, and of course Titus sent an entire uh, soldier army down there to 
to take care of them, and they were, of course, locked up there. If you've read the story of Masada, you know that they used Jewish slaves to build a dirt ramp up the backside. They burst in the walls when they got the ramp high enough. They went in, and, and the 900, and I think it was 63 or so Jews were all dead. Um, a few witnesses, women or so, hid in the cisterns, alleged to have told the story that they had taken their own lives so they wouldn't be turned over to Titus's army. It's a fascinating story, and it has a lot of violence to it, but nothing like the book of Revelation. Nothing. I mean, I went back and read it just so as I thought about this book and the theory that it was written during Nero's persecution back in the 60s, and therefore it's supposed to have, have it's supposed to be describing what happened in 70 AD. I just went back to read the history, and it just would have to be majorly symbolized. It's also true that the millennium, the thousand years revealed in Revelation 20, you'd find it difficult to, to read it in any other way other than what it says, be difficult to spiritualize it. The problems with the view that it's written during Nero's reign is that one early church father in his work called Against Heresies which was penned, by the way, in the second century, 175 to 185. This is what he said about who was on the throne at the time of the apocalypse, who was on the throne at the time. We will not, Irenaeus says, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist. For if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalypse for that was not seen very long time since, but almost in our day toward the end of Domitian's reign. So here Irenaeus is indicating that the guy that saw the revelation was seeing it during Domitian's reign. It's a very, very difficult piece of history for someone who wants to say all this happened in 70 AD and so therefore this book was written in the 60s. Very difficult to deal with Irenaeus. In fact, there, the preterist view is that he was mistaken that he totally forgot who was on the throne. If Nero's reigning when John writes this, you also have to think about the seven churches and the condition they were in. For one thing, the Ephesians church was established in the mid-50s. By the time John writes the apocalypse in chapter 2, the Ephesian church is what? Being accused of what? Losing their first love just 10 years later. If John wrote it in the 60s, then less, 10 years or less later, Ephesus has been birthed by Paul. It's gained its strength. It's been a powerful church, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, the whole ministry, and yet it's being accused of losing its first love less than 10 years later. That would be odd. It is true that church history indicates that Domitian's reign was called a reign of terror, and it began in 93 AD. So if Irenaeus is right and Domitian was on the throne when John received the vision, it would be about the right time frame. He wrote it about 96, if Domitian was reigning and the persecution began. By the way, Domitian's persecution and his reign of terror against Christians was, was sometimes unreadable. Very, very cruel, vile, twisted he was a terrible emperor of Rome. The church fathers testified to the severe persecution and martyrdom of Christians under Domitian. 
As I said, they called him a second Nero. Here's another interesting thing. In 60 AD, there was a massive earthquake that leveled the city of Laodicea. In 60 AD, leveled Laodicea. So if John writes, in Revelation, writes Revelation in the 60s, and there's a letter to the church at Laodicea, having already seen its glory and already rebuilt, how can that be? The preterist says, oh, that's possible because it would have only taken them a couple years to come back to glory. The church was leveled, history tells us. The, the city, rather. And therefore, of course, the church, if there was a church there. John MacArthur points out that apparently, according to tradition, John himself, the apostle, didn't arrive in Asia Minor until the Jewish revolt against Rome, which took place in 66 to 70. So John the apostle wasn't even in Asia Minor until that Jewish revolt. So it could not have been that he wrote this, having been exiled to the island of Patmos any time in the 60s or so it seems. So it just sort of sets up for us the framework that we're going to approach this text as it seems to unfold. It is a book unfolding the future events yet to take place. There are things that are presently happening, as John indicates in the opening verses. There are things that are presently being dealt with in terms of the life of churches, and there are things yet to come. Notice in chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. You have, you have this opening statement that these are the things being communicated to, John, to Christ's bondservants about the things which must soon take place. Notice in verse 4, it is written to the seven churches that are in Asia. Verse 5 indicates it is written to those whom Jesus Christ loves and who have been loosed from their sins by his blood. Verse 6, notice it is written to those who've been made a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. So those are the recipients it is written to believers. It is written to seven churches specifically. It is sent by messengers to those churches. And in those churches, you have these beloved believers who are loved by Christ and who've been loosed from their sins by his blood, and they've been made a kingdom of priests to serve the living God. Now, as I said, this is, in the opening verse, a revelation. It is a revelation. The word literally is what Peter used when I read to you those other passages. It is an apocalypse in one sense. If you want to talk about the type of revelation it is, it is an uncovering. Apocalypse, just to remove a cover, to take a cover off, to uncover, to unveil. It's an unveiling. In Romans 2 verse 5, this word apocalypse for revelation can be used to speak of the righteous judgment of God being uncovered and revealed. 
the wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, Paul mentions in Romans 2.5. Same word, but in reference to the uncovering of God's wrath. Romans 16, verse 25, the word is used with respect to preaching the gospel. The preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation, there's that word, the uncovering of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. He's speaking of the redeeming work of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who comes and he redeems and then he sends his spirit and it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. This revelation, this mystery is uncovered in the preaching of Jesus Christ. So again, the word can be used to, to mean it uncovers the wrath of God as he begins to pour out his wrath. It's being stored up now and when he begins to pour it out in the consummation of the ages. It can be used to speak of uncovering the truth of the gospel, the mystery that was hidden, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of the God-man as our redeemer. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, another use of this word that begins to tell us a little bit about how John might be using it. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7, I think I may have mentioned this verse last time to you, that we as believers are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here the word is used to speak of the actual uncovering of the events of his arrival. His actual arrival, his second coming in power and glory. Now, Paul also uses the word in Galatians 1 to speak of how revelation was given to him by God. Galatians 1 verse 12. He said, I didn't receive it from men, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, I received it through an uncovering that Jesus Christ gave to me. He's speaking of truth given by the Lord himself to the apostle. That's how it worked. God just like he did with the prophets, gave revelation into the mind and heart of those who would speak his truth authoritatively. And that is precisely what happened with the apostles who had prophetic gifts. Yes, they were inspired by God to write scripture, but they also had the prophetic gift. And so here you have apocalypse used in all these different ways. The uncovering of God's wrath, the unfolding of the gospel, or a revelation from Jesus Christ given to Paul, an uncovering given by Christ. I just read to you 1 Peter 1, verse 7. The proof of your faith, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, there it is, at the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The uncovering of who he is in all his glory to the world in his arrival. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the uncovering, the unveiling of who he is. Peter goes on to say in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, verse 13, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. There it is. When he comes, there will be a revealing of his glory. Colossians 3 says the same thing. Set your mind on things above, right? And then in verse 4, the, the coming of Jesus Christ, the appearing of Jesus Christ, you will also be with him and revealed with him when he comes. 
Again, there is this great uncovering. So see the many ways that the word apocalypse can be used, and then we'll just sort of put it back into Revelation 1 for a moment. Clearly, the apocalypse can be the uncovering of the truth about redemption found in Christ, the gospel, unfolding the mystery of the gospel. That can be an uncovering, an unveiling, an apocalypse, a revelation. We're given that right here in Scripture. This is a revelation, a written revelation, a written uncovering about the truth of redemption. It is also true that the word can mean an uncovering of truth by Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ himself brings the truth to the apostles and therefore gives it to his people. And it can also be an uncovering of the person of Christ at his parousia, his appearing in the glory of his second coming. Notice also back in Revelation chapter 1 that John calls this work, he calls it a prophecy. John calls this work a prophecy. So here you have now the, the term for the genre that we have is apocalyptic. It is apocalyptic. We're warned not to disobey the the words that we're given here were to heed the prophecy, verse one, and at the same time, it is a, an uncovering or an unveiling. So now you have two sort of ways that this book is described. It is described as an uncovering of Jesus Christ. We don't know yet whether it's from him or about him or maybe both. We haven't decided that yet, but it is also a prophecy. That is to say, it, it does two things. Prophecy always does two things. Prophecy, when something's called a prophecy, it is speaking both of the process of revelation and elements that are predictive in it. So here you have the process of revelation mentioned. Why? Because it is God putting a revelation into the mind of John by visions and direct implanting of truth into his spiritually renewed mind and heart. And it is also predictive. It's a prophecy in the sense that it has elements to it that tell you about things yet to come. So it's interesting. It is apocalyptic in the sense that it uncovers Jesus Christ or it uncovers what he wants to tell us, however you take the preposition in verse one, and it is also prophecy and we're warned to heed it, to listen to it, and to obey it. In fact, it says we're blessed if we do it. Notice verse three. Blessing and obedience are the result. Blessed is he who reads it. That's true. I mean, if you're allowed to read it, it is for your blessing. I mean, you read through this thing and you see what's coming and to know and have your mind illumined to its realities, to have it change your Christian life, the way you think about Jesus Christ and his return, this is to bless your life. This is to bless your life. And if you hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, so it is purposed for your blessing to know the specifics and it is purposed for your blessing in obeying what it says. And you're not to violate it. You're to obey it and heed what it says. 
That, by the way, is repeated at the end of the book. Do not mess around with this prophecy. Do not ignore it. Heed the prophecy. Heed it. It is for your blessing and it is for your obedience. So let's go back to verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, notice, which God gave him to show his bondservants. Ah, okay. Now we begin to understand. This is, of course, a revelation about Jesus Christ for sure. But clearly from the text, it seems that it is an unveiling from the Father to Jesus Christ communicated to his servant from the Lord himself. By the, by the angel to John so that we would know. So it seems to me when you come to that first phrase, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, it is true. It is about him. Yes, it is true. It is an unveiling of him. But more importantly, it is his uncovering, his unveiling given to, a communicated rather, to his bondservant John because it was given to him by the Father in order to show his bondservants. That's what we have here in this opening notation. Now, to break the book up is, is fairly, um, I mean, there are all kinds of different structures, but we're going to take the simplest approach to this. Dr. Robert Thomas has a great outline and other commentators have a great outline and some of the charts that I have have great outlines and structures. I think one of the, one of the best, most simple ways to look at this is that there, if you just sort of do a flyover in the structure of the book, there are basically three main parts and then, then a fourth uh, sort of a call, if you will. The first part is in verses 1 through, through verse 20, that is dealing with sort of the past dynamic, if you will, and we'll sort of walk our way through that when we get into the book. Then chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 22, in the discussion with the churches, that is the present sort of work that Jesus Christ is doing as he moves in and through his people to challenge his people to be faithful and to prepare for what is to come. And then in the third part, you begin in chapter 4 and you move all the way through chapter 22, likely the early verses, maybe even 22 verse 5, that is dealing with this prediction, this future prophecy about Christ's appearing and victory and the judgment of the wicked. And then, of course, at the end of the book, chapter 22, verse 6 to 21, you have a, you have a call, an exhortation. You have, you have the, the pleading with Jesus Christ to come quickly, and then you have Christ himself calling his people to be faithful. So you have this vision of the prophet in this first chapter, which prepares you for what is to come. You have this this condition, really, this state of the church spoken about as the messenger on Christ's behalf goes to the churches to warn them, and then you have this wonderful uh, unveiling and uncovering of this tremendous return of Christ in power and glory and the ultimate judgment of the wicked followed then by these invitations. 
The book is full of Old Testament allusions, nearly 300 of them out of the, the 400 and some texts. There is all kinds of allusion to the Old Testament. We will look at those as we go, but primarily what we want to do just as we close out our time is this first section. Clearly, this is Jesus Christ unveiling himself. He's unveiling himself. Notice the, the verse two terminology, who testified to the word of God, speaking of his bondservant John. He testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. This is John getting his revelation from Jesus Christ, given from the Father, communicated by his angel, and it is John who is testifying to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all that he saw, and he is saying, look, if you want to be blessed you must set your mind to know Christ's return, to know of its glory, to know of his holiness, to know the depths of his power, to know the extent of his judgment, to know the the fate of the wicked, to know the storing up of wrath, to know the justice of God, to know the holiness of God, to know the wonder of Christ's victory over evil, to see the hardness of the human heart, that no matter how much judgment comes, there is this continual rising up in the human heart of those on earth who determine against God to defy him. And you see right from the very beginning of the judgments in chapter six, all these commands flying out of heaven about what is to come, warnings, gospel warnings and commands, go here, do this, send this angel over here, go judge here, go bring this upon mankind. It is a noisy environment in heaven in those first few chapters of the judgments. And as they unfold, angels begin to become sobered God's people begin to become sobered. Heaven itself even becomes sobered. In fact, it's fascinating to read that after all the noise of chapter six and seven as the beginning of the judgments unfold, chapter eight opens up in verse one saying that because there are some greater and more severe judgments that are just about to unfold, there is in heaven silence for 30 minutes. Even God wants a drum roll. Even God sets sobriety on his creation for the judgment that is going to come. Why? Because Jesus Christ throughout this entire revelation is the one who overpowers evil. He conquered it, he will overpower it. But you must read it knowing that the human heart does not easily silence. It takes the power of God. Does God save through the tribulation? Oh, we're gonna see that. We're gonna unpack a whole section of why the tribulation salvations are unique. Gonna unpack the whole section of what is happening to the church in the book of Revelation. Why is it unique? Why does Revelation 6 to 19 feature prominently Israel and not the church? Why is it unique? What is happening? What is happening to believers? Is God still saving? Yes. But it is to expose the hardness of the human heart 
and the glory of Christ. Jesus Christ is the central feature then of what is to unfold. And he gives it to John and he says to you, if you want to explore this revelation, you will be blessed if you read it. You'll be blessed if you hear it with spiritual ears. It is the prophecy from God, the unveiling given by Jesus Christ. And better yet, if you heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. It's a great statement at the end of that verse three, the time is near. You know how we get. This is why preterist views exist. This is why symbolic views of revelation exist. This is why sometimes we we tend to spiritualize these views. As I've been reading the different views, it is almost always that we default in our hearts and minds to say, well, if it was near to them and it's 1,900 years, I don't see how you can say that he's coming soon. I don't see how you can say that these things must soon take place. I don't see how you can say that the time is near when it's been this long. But all through the book of Revelation, we are intended to know that we don't see things as God sees them. We don't calculate them as he calculates them. In fact, it's rather odd to me, it seems, to be bothered by timing. Of course, there is a dispute over whether that means suddenly or soon chronologically. We'll get to that. But, but ultimately, it seems strange to me that in a book filled with so much predictive, uh, so much predictive element that that is beyond what you could conceive, it is strange to me that anyone would be bothered by the time frame. We already have other passages that say, look, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, right? Peter, the Lord's not slow. Psalm 90, the transitoriness of life. Uh, you know, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. Everything is swept over like a waterfall in the flood. Life goes by, ages go by, your life's a vapor. How can your life be a vapor when it's, what, uh, three score and 10, if by strength 80? How can that be considered a vapor? Because God does not concern himself with things like that. All he concerns himself with is his timing for his glory, his power, and the, and the triumph of Jesus Christ. So the point John opens up with here is that if this is the unveiling given by Christ, then you better read it for your blessing, you better hear it with spiritual ears for your blessing, and you better heed everything that's written in it, for the time is near. In your mind, maybe not, but in God's economy, it is near. In fact, here's an interesting reality. Peter says... When he wrote 1 Peter in verse 4, or in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, I want you to be fervent in your love and serve the body of Christ. Why? Because in verse 7, he said, the end of all things is upon you. Peter, Peter, you blew it. The end of all things is upon. How could you scare the church like that, Peter? You know, and we're looking back and saying, 1,900 years, come on. Peter, you totally blew it. No. We'll talk about imminence, but God wants us to see things from his perspective and and know that in his economy, 
The judgment is coming. The return of Christ is coming. The urgency is there. The human heart will not bow down until it is fully judged and evil is fully dealt with. God will triumph. It will take a series of some of the most astronomical events to ever hit the globe, things that are beyond comprehension, things which Jesus referred to in the Olivet Discourse as tribulations which the world has never seen things that are unfathomable and cannot be imagined. We get a glimpse of it in the visions of John in his revelation here. God wants us to know that if he says the time is soon and he says you will be blessed to obey the things which are written in it, then you don't have to worry about how much time has passed. You don't have to worry. What does that matter? Every generation who reads it knows this is a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, my glorious Lord. Every generation who reads it and fixes their hope to be brought to them at the revelation of Christ, purifies their life, is sober in their mind, is called up tight and sobered in their, and alert in their obedience. Every believer who reads the prophecy of this book and hears it with spiritual ears and heeds what's written in it is blessed in their life John said, by the revelation of Christ. Every believer who reads this testifies to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Every believer. We are the ones loved by Christ, released from our sins by his blood, verse five. We're the ones he's made into a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. We're the ones used by God as John was used to say to unbelievers, you know not what you do because the time is near. It's gonna come. So John indeed wrote this. I believe he wrote it in about 96 AD under the reign of terror of Domitian, Roman emperor, John had been exiled to the island of Patmos. We'll look at that extensively next time. Having been exiled to the island of Patmos, he was paying the the price for having testified faithfully. He was the last of the apostles. Tradition says that he survived until his older age, but, but tradition also indicates in the early church that he was boiled in oil, suffered greatly, left alone on the island, And the Lord Jesus Christ, by his angel, communicates what was given to Christ by his Father so that the slaves of Christ, all of us, would be shown the things which must soon take place. And as John testified to the word of God and the testimony of Christ to all that he saw, then blessed as he reads what he saw and heeds what is written in it, for the time is near. It is near. It is upon us. It is coming. It is the last days. And so all through our study of this book, we must must enjoy, be thrilled with, embrace the blessedness that comes from heeding what's written in it. Don't come to this study and imagine that we're gonna argue every little nuance of pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. We'll talk about all that. It's actually a fun discussion. Don't think you're gonna come here and say, well, I'm a mill and I'm this mill and I'm that mill and look, it's, it's a great discussion to get into, but 
I want verse 3 in our minds. Blessed is he who reads this, hears it, and heeds it. For the time is near. You say, well, I believe it all happened in 70 AD. Then what does John mean in verse 3? Doesn't he still mean you must read it and hear it and heed it? Yes. Even if you could explain all the events in 6 to 19, back in 70 AD, it's still going to have to have implications in your life. Even if you don't think Revelation 20 is a literal thousand-year reign, and of course, I'd love to sit you down with Matt Waymire, and you guys can go to it. <laughs> Even if you didn't believe that, are you not called in verse 3 to blessing and obedience? Why? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, anytime a book says this is from Jesus to his slaves, right in the first verse, and his people, we, we listen, we submit, we come under. We don't bother with whether or not there's a different view of the timing or the author. We know the text, the inspired text says that this servant, whoever he is, testified to the word of God and is paying the price. And so we're told that if you want to know the arrival of your Savior, if you want to know what is written in this book about the glory of Christ, then heed what he has revealed which was given to him by the Father and you will be blessed for the time is near. I was reading this week the view that puts all this before 70 AD and I just marveled at the reality that Christ never actually came when Titus conquered Jerusalem. Hmm. He didn't touch down on the Mount of Olives. Uh, that's pretty clear he's going to do that. There's a whole bunch of things in the Olivet Discourse that are going to happen when he comes. There's a whole bunch of prophecies that match Revelation from Daniel 9 that are very specific. And then Revelation 6 to 19, all these judgments and Christ returns at the end of them. 70 AD, he didn't come. And if he did come, we're in serious trouble. Because <laughs> now he's got to come a third time to get us. And there's no such coming in the scriptures. There's only the, the second resurrection. The resurrection of us. Really, the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits of our resurrection. And we don't die the second death because we're alive. So, listen, beloved, these opening words call us to blessing and obedience. Why? Because it doesn't matter what the background of it, this is an apocalypse given by Christ, given to him by the Father. It's a revealing and an unveiling and it is communicated by the slave John to those who are Christ's slaves who are to be shown the things which must soon take place. And if you read it for blessing and obey it for blessing you will be doing what Peter called you to do, sober and alert and fixing your hope completely to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fixing your hope on the grace to be brought to us. That's where we fix our hope, on our beloved Jesus Christ and his return. Don't you want him to come back? I mean, I want to see souls saved, but I'm in attention. 
I want to see my Lord. More importantly, I want to see evil crushed by his triumph and holiness. I want to see his name hallowed, revered. I want to see his name hallowed and revered properly in my life. Not just in the world and in the universe, but in my own life. I want, I want my new glorified body. I want to be made in his likeness. I want to see all of the, the evil that has perpetrated murders and lies and thievery and all that offends God. I want to see all that completely and justly dealt with and I want to see the curse completely reversed and I want to see the power of Christ on display in such a way that his kingdom is set up and he's ruling as has been said. I want to see Israel come to their savior as a nation and shock the world that they worship Jesus the Messiah, Romans 11 says. I want to see that. I want to see what you're like when you're fully glorified. And I know you feel the same way about me. So as we come into this section, this opening epilogue or prologue, if you will, and we begin to see John being told the purpose of the book, I just wanted to camp for a moment on this unveiling coming from Christ and the blessedness that comes from hearing it with spiritual ears and heeding it. Fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you. Fix it completely. So beloved, we do not think about the coming of Christ enough. Amen? We do not. I hope that our exposition of Revelation will take us to new vistas as a church. I hope that it causes us to bow down with greater humility before the Lord of glory. I hope that instead of wrangling about eschatological views, we can discuss them and enjoy the banter and the thrill of it, but ultimately know that there is blessing in reading this and obeying what is written in it. I hope that it causes us to fear. I hope that it crushes our pride. And I hope that it cleanses our life because he who fixes his hope on these things purifies himself just as the Lord is pure. I, think, I hope it makes for a holy people. Bow with me. Lord, thank you. This has been, again, somewhat of a summary and a bit of a flyover, if you will, but you have taught us now that this is an unveiling from you. It is, of course, about you. It does reveal to us your coming, but it is from God, the Father, to you communicated through your messenger to your servant John. And there's such intimacy in this unbreakable chain of revealing. And we find ourselves already in verse one as your bondservants who are being shown these things. How we marvel. And like John, we want to testify to the word of God and to the testimony of our Savior Jesus Christ of all that we know all that we have now witnessed and experienced in our Christian life, all that our eyes of faith have opened to us. And Lord, you charge us that if this is from our Lord, 
so that we might be shown all that must take place. And you charge us that the time is near and we ought not to count time as we would. We ought to think carefully about what is written here and that it's a blessing to read it and to be illumined in our minds with it and to hear it with spiritual ears and then to yield our stubborn selfishness to it to not let the miraculous and supernatural elements of it offend our rational sensibilities, but just to accept that you are an omnipotent God and who will do what you said you were going to do. Lord, may we not suffer the pride of trying to deal with this genre of literature or the symbols here and then over-symbolize things because we just don't want to accept the straightforward terminology. Keep us from that. And yet keep us humble and not to be dogmatic about things we cannot know. Most of all, where it calls us to conviction, a new perspective in our hearts and minds, to see you rightly, to see sin rightly, to see your triumph over it rightly. Every place it calls us to live a holy life, a circumspect life, an alert life. Lord, help us by your strength to believe it with true entrustment of our hearts and to yield to it. Take us through this great revelation and this great vision and make us a people more humble than we were before we started the study. And then use it to draw us together and empower us to fix our hope completely on that grace to be sober to gird up the loins of our mind with no loose ends anything that can drag us down but to put our attention on you to be riveted by you we pray for your glory's sake which we anticipate seeing the greatness of in this study amen